If you would, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30, verses 18 to 23. This will be the passage that is set before us this morning, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 to 23. As I've mentioned to you before, the author of Proverbs 30 is Augur, and he's discipling, if not actual sons, certainly spiritual sons, Ithiel and Eucal. And he says in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 to 23, these words, There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. As I thought long and hard about Proverbs 30 verses 18 to 23, I thought, as the title of the sermon suggests this morning, the best and worst of creation and community. The best and worst of creation and community. For surely, that is what Augur is speaking to us regarding. It's as though Augur takes life in God's world and through those vivid pictures gives us a sense of life among God's people. He wants to show us by the things that he sees in creation and community not only the best but also the worst. And as I thought about the outline for this morning, what I thought was a clear chiastic structure What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. You have an A, a B, a B, and an A. You have, for instance, the best of creation. Then you have the best of community. And then you see all of that perverted and turned around so that we might see the worst of community and then the worst of of creation. So that's your four-point outline this morning. The best of creation, the best of community, the worst of community, and the worst of creation. And what Augur wants us to know and what he wants his spiritual sons to know is that there is within God's created order the best. That's the way he created it. He created it to be good. 
He created it to be enjoyed. And what has happened is that creation has gone bad. And it's affected every part of creation, including, of course, the realm in which we most live and have our being, and that is in community. And what Augur does is describe for us nine, nine aspects of the best and the worst of creation and community. And I want to share those with you. In fact, I'll even add one at the end. Now, Augur is not going to be outdone. When he says three, no four, three, no four, I'll say no, ten. Nine, not, uh, not, not nine, but ten. And as I do, I want you to focus specifically on the things that Augur teaches us about life. What he tells us about both creation and community. Here's the first one. Under this outline point of the best of creation, here's what he says. Here's what he means when he talks about verse 18, the best of creation. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. In other words, Augur says, there are some things in creation, the best of creation, that both marvel me and mystify me. I, I'd say that when I observe these things in life, they're too wonderful for me. I marvel at them. And there are things in the best of creation that totally mystify me. I don't understand them. And he takes these experiences that he sees through his eyes about life and he tells us about them in the form of discipleship toward his sons. And the best of creation, the things that he sees with his eyes when he looks out at the world, he says are so wonderful for me, they marvel me, and yet they're so mystifying that I don't understand them. What are they? What are they? Here's the first one. Look at verse 19. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of an eagle in the sky. We could call it the soaring of an eagle. Now why, why does he marvel at this? Well, there have been no end of interpretations as to exactly what Augur is referring to. And there are many, many people who want to take all of these visual occurrences, these observances that Augur has to see some kind of similarity, some kind of pattern. And there's no shortness of answers about those things. And the answer for all of us is we simply don't know exactly. We don't know why this marvels him. It could be something as simple as this. When he talks about this eagle, the soaring of an eagle, we don't really know that it's actually an eagle as you and I would know it. It's actually the word that's used back in verse 17. Do you see it there? And the young eagles will eat it. That's the Hebrew term that could also be translated vultures. And you remember last time that's what I told you, that that probably is the sense of what verse 17 says. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the vultures will eat it. 
So we don't know exactly which bird he's referring to. But even if it's truly an eagle, like you and I would see, a bald eagle or a vulture, we know that that's a heavy bird. And it may be that Augur is looking up into the sky, and as he observes this very heavy bird flying around with its wings, and it's looking so effortless, maybe he looks at that bird, and he sees the motion and the movement of that animal, and he marvels and is mystified by it, because it looks like it's almost defying gravity. You've ever had that same experience where you look at that bird and it almost appears at times that when that bird is working through a wind stream that the bird is flapping its wings so effortlessly. It really is a marvel to see the soaring of an eagle. And the motion and the movement of that very created animal is something to marvel after. And then not only the soaring of an eagle, look at what he says next. The way of a serpent on a rock. We could call it the slithering of a snake. The slithering of a snake. It's very interesting that in Palestine, where this would have been written, this is an amazing thing because there were 30 different kinds of snakes, six of them, by the way, which were poisonous. And Augur is seeing one of them. We don't know which kind. But he observes this snake on a rock, and again, maybe with the commonality of all of them, he's marveling at the motion and the movement of a snake on a rock, which is all the more interesting because you remember in Genesis 3.14, the curse on the snake by God was that the snake would have to go on the dust on its belly for the rest of its life, remember? And yet it's still a, a marvelous creature to watch. You don't want to be standing around it, of course especially if it's poisonous, but one thing you do marvel at, all of us, and that is how that snake slithers along from rock to rock to rock without any legs, moving its body, slithering along at a pace sometimes that is so quick and so fast that maybe you don't have time to get out of the way. It is really a mystifying thing to watch the slithering of a snake on a rock. And this is something that just marvels Agur. And it appears as though he's pointing to something. Something is marvelous and mystifying to him about these creatures as he observes them in life. What is it? Look at the third. The sailing of a ship. Not just the soaring of an eagle, not just the slithering of a snake, but also the sailing of a ship. Notice what he says. This is the third thing that he marvels at, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea. The way of a ship in the middle of the sea. Maybe again he's referring to motion and movement. Because if you've ever noticed a ship at sea, especially at high sea and at rough sea, the marvel of that ship is that it doesn't capsize. It can go through much agitated motion and movement, and yet it's an amazing thing to watch those ships at high sea not capsize. Man can create something and can withstand even the ferocity at times of high seas and turbulent waters. It's an amazing thing to observe. And apparently Augur has seen it. And he says to himself, the best of creation, the best that I can observe is the soaring of an eagle in the sky. 
the slithering of a serpent on a rock, and the sailing of a ship in the middle of the sea. And then I want you to notice something else in those three verses and the next phrase, and even in the next phrase in verse 20. Notice that he uses the Hebrew word Derek, like a young man's name, Derek. The way, the way, the way, the way. Verse 20, this is the way. It's no accident that he uses that Hebrew word Derek five times in these verses. And so what Augur is probably uh, pointing toward is not the reality of just the eagle, just the serpent, just the ship, but the way of them, their journey, how they move along, the movement of these that we call the best of creation. And as I told you before, I've thought about this. So many commentators have spilled so much ink on exactly why he mentions these three, especially as he mentions the fourth, and that's under what we could call the best of community. In other words, Augur moves from these three descriptions, the soaring of an eagle, the slithering of a snake, the sailing of a ship, to refer next not to those things in the inanimate creation, but to those things that are animated, that is, human beings, and he moves from the best of creation now to the best of community. He has three things he observes about creation, and now he observes something about community. And what is it? Look at the end of verse 19. And the way of a man with a maid. Or more properly translated, the way of a man in a maid. The preposition should be in. And that may give us the key. Now, it may sound erotic to you. It may sound sensual to you. It's not meant to be that in all of its context. It's simply meaning something like this. Augur is discipling his sons. And he's telling them, I want you to know about the best of creation and the best of community. And the best of creation is this. Have you ever observed, my sons, the movement and the motion of the soaring of an eagle? The effortlessness, the defying of gravity. It's surely something to behold. It's something to watch. Have you ever seen the slithering of a snake, the motion and movement of a fast snake on the rock? It's a marvel to see. It mystifies me how he can do it. And my sons... Have you ever noticed the sailing of a ship at high sea, how it motions and moves without being capsized? If you've ever seen those, my sons, you marvel at them. But I want to tell you something that is far beyond the compare of those things. It's actually the best of community. In fact, it's the best of the best of community. And here it is. The way of a man in a maid. You say, what does that refer to? It refers to the wonderful, the joyous, the blessed, the sanctioned, God-honoring marriage relationship of the sexual union of a man and his wife. That's what he says is the best of creation. That is, the best of the community in God's creation. He says, I could show you pictures... We could go to the beach and we could see the sailing of a ship. We could go to the rocks and see the slithering of a snake. 
and we could look into the sky and see the soaring of an eagle and it would be wonderful, too wonderful in fact for me to describe to you. It mystifies me how God has created those things but I tell you what, God has created something else that is far more glorious, it is far more worshipful, it is far more to the eye, it is far more to the body than any of those other things and the best of community is here and it is this. This, it is a marriage. It is the marriage of a man to his wife. Notice the word that he uses there, a maid. This is not talking about a housekeeper. This is talking about a young virgin. This is talking about a a young woman who's never known marital love, who's never been with a man. And the best of community, Agur says to his young sons, whose hormones are raging, who want to express themselves sexually, and he says to them, here's how to do it. Here's the right way. Here's what you must do. If you want to marvel at all of the best of God's creation, here's His created order. It's community. And here within community, it is this. It is a man who takes a sweetheart as his wife, and he has relations with her, and in the joy and the intimacy of conjugal love, it is the best of the best. He's counseling his young sons to save themselves in their purity for the wife who comes along who is his lover, and he marries her. She's a young virgin. She's known not any man, and he is a virgin as well, as a son who has kept himself chaste. He's been discipled by his dad. And Augur says, I want you to know the fruit of the glorious sanctioning of the bliss of conjugal love in the context of a husband and wife relationship. It's too wonderful for me, he says. It's mystifying to me. And it may even have this sense because it's connected with the other three. Four things are too wonderful for me. The motion and movement of the soaring of an eagle, of the slithering of a snake, of the sailing of the ship, and the motion and the movement of the lovemaking of a man and his wife. And I tell you, Augur says, it is the most beautiful thing in all of community because it's the pinnacle of God's creation. Because when God does this... When this is what God does in the procreation of the marriage relationship, it produces children, which when they are of age, they then procreate. And what God does is He lays the very foundation through the conjugal relationship of a man and his wife throughout all the generations so that society is stable. He's saying in one verse, one quarter of one verse, that the stability of a society is the purity and the sexuality of married love. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And he says, it's the best. It's the best of creation and it's the best of community. The sexual union of a man and his wife is so wonderful. It's so designed by God to be a blessed blissful, sanctioned, erotic, sensual, love-making that is absolutely the pinnacle of what joins a man 
to his wife. And it produces children, and the children are a blessing in society when, when, they, when they follow in mom and dad's order, and when they do what is right. And this society is blessed by God because back in Genesis, he says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And God says, this is good. Oh, this is very good. I sanction it. I bless it. I tell you that there is nothing like it. This is a dad discipling his boys in the right way. This is good counsel. This is not just the the birds and the bees discussion. This is what he's telling them will give them the opportunity to have the most blessed, the most fulfilled, the most complete sexual relationship that you can have on this earth. And it is the relationship between a man, a husband, and his wife. It's a beautiful thing. It's too wonderful. You marvel at it. We're mystified at how God can bring two people together in a God-blessed relationship so that they are blessed beyond measure. It's the best of community. Now, as soon as the words come out of Augur's mouth, as soon as it happens, he's reminded of the worst of community. He's reminded of the worst of community. That's the third in our outline points. Because as soon as he, as he thinks of this marital bliss, of this love, of this sexual union between a man and his wife, and when he thinks about all of these other things in the created order that gives him this marveling and this mystifying observance in life, as soon as he thinks about all of the good things in this world, he has to tell us about the worst, about our sin-cursed world. And here's the worst of community. Notice how he speaks of it in verse 21. Under three things, the earth quakes. And under four, it cannot bear up. Well, what is it? What are those things? He gives us five. Five of them. And here's the first one. Back up to verse 20. Back up to verse 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Here's the worst of community. Here's something Agur says that actually makes the earth tremble, quake. Something that causes the land, the people, the community not to endure, not to be able to bear up. He has four, specifically under that list, I'm going to add the fifth in verse 20, which is surely linked to verse 19, and it speaks of this wedded bliss, this God-sanctioned relationship of the sexual union of a man and his wife, and it's God-ordained, and it's nothing but lovely and beautiful. And Augur says, almost right on the heels of that, but let me tell you what. When sin enters the community, the first thing that's going to be perverted by Satan's design is that very sexual union of a husband and his wife. 
And he says, and here's the way of an adulterous woman. Here's her way. Here's the way of all of these things I've, I've observed. Here's the way of a man in a maid. Here's the beauty of it. And here's the perversion of it. Here it is. The way of an adulterous woman. Colon. And here's what she does. She eats. She wipes her mouth. And she then attempts to absolve herself from guilt. I have done no wrong. I've committed no transgression. We could call this the sham of an adulterous woman. The sham love and pretense. Everybody says in this world, I'm just out to love and be loved. I just want to find love. I want to be cared for by others. And then God, in His grace and His mercy, brings someone like that to you. And you love them, and you care for them, and they love you, and they care for you, and you're joined in marriage, you're joined in holy matrimony, and it's blessed of God, and you are loved, and you love, and they are loved, and they love, and we all live happily ever after, right? No. Satan will do everything he can to pervert the design of God and what he does when in a relationship, according to Genesis, should only be two people, one man and one woman, Satan, trying to pervert God's will and God's plan, brings in a third party, an adulterous woman, who is boisterous, she's loud, she's manipulative, and through her lips, she seduces the man. And instead of it being one man, one woman, cleaving together in a strong bond, for the rest of their life, a third person enters into the relationship and adultery ensues. And it's the perversion of the very plan of God, introducing a third rather than the two. And when that occurs, she eats, wipes her mouth, finishes the deed, and then says, I've done nothing wrong. In fact, if you look in the Song of Solomon, you'll find that euphemistically, when they talk about food, it's speaking of sexual feasting. And so, in a turn of a phrase, Agur says, my sons, listen to me. If you want this marital love, if you want God's blessing in your relationship sexually, if you want all of the highest and the best, then turn away from the adulterous woman because what she will do is seduce you. It's a sham love. It's a sham pretense. You think you're going to be loved. You think you're going to be cared for. You think it's going to be as good as the relationship you have with your wife. But I'm telling you, she will feast with you until... She has her satisfaction and she wipes her mouth and, as it were, wipes herself from you and says, I've done no wrong. I'm absolved. Maybe she even says by that, He initiated it to me. I'm the victim as well. And what you have is the destruction of a society. It's no longer one man, one woman, married for life, procreating in a blessed sexual union together to produce children in order for the society to be, to be stable. But you've introduced into 
the best of community, the worst of it, and the destruction of the very society itself. You see, adultery, then as now, is one of those sins that destroys a society. And the sham love and the sham pretense of an adulteress brings down many men. Hasn't Solomon himself, in addition to Augur here, spoken of this time after time after time? Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs 2. Solomon does the same thing to disciple those under him. He says in Proverbs chapter 2, I want to, according to verse 16, he says, deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Do you see that? Leaves the companion of her youth. She too apparently once had this wedded bliss. She was in the dynamics of a wonderful, God-blessed sexual relationship with the man who was her husband, but she's become the strange woman. She's become the adulteress who flatters with her words and she forgets the covenant of her God for her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. He's trying to warn us about the destruction of society. Look at chapter 5. Solomon even becomes more explicit than Augur. He says in verse 15 of Proverbs 5, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love, the love of your wife. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man, there's that word Derek, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. Chapter 7, verse 5. Hear my words that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Stay away from the adulteress. That's what Agur is discipling his sons to do. Don't you want to have marital love, my sons? That's the apex of community, where two become one flesh. Don't you want that? This woman, this adulteress, she's boisterous. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. In other words, don't trust her. That's why Proverbs 22 says it this way, verse 14. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. 
he who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Don't fall into the pit, my friends. Whoever you are, young person especially, don't fall into the pit. Save yourself. Save yourself. I spoke with someone recently who in the midst of sexual sin and being confronted and who was repenting with eyes full of tears said, No! What have I done? And with my own tears, I saw the destruction of a person's whole life, virginity, gone. Don't let it happen to you, young person. Trust God. Trust God. Be faithful. Allow Him to bless you with marital love that's beyond description. It's, it's a marvel beyond words. And if you trust God, and if you save yourself for that husband or wife, you'll have joy unspeakable. The witted bless of bliss of sexual love it's beyond compare this this woman this adulteress she doesn't care about you she doesn't care a thing about you or this man who goes after her he doesn't care anything about his wife he doesn't love her that's why the writer the Hebrews says so clearly to us in our Bibles this is this is what we have to be warned about. Hebrews 13, chapter 4. This is what we must know. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Don't believe in the sham adulteress. It's a sham love. It's a sham pretense. She'll quote-unquote love you and then throw you away and you'll be reduced to a loaf of bread. And that's just the first of five things that work to bring about the worst of community. Here's the second. The sovereignty of a novice. Look at the first part of verse 22. Under a slave when he becomes a king. What does that mean? Well, the word slave should probably be translated officer. And it's referring to someone who's not or should not be in the position of being in royalty, of serving as a prince. In other words, it's someone who should not be taking office. They don't have the experience, experience they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the preparation. And Agur says, in our world, one of the worst things in community is to put a person in political office, in royal office, who does not deserve to be there because he's a novice. He's someone who hasn't been trained. He doesn't have the experience. He can't be about the right kind of decision-making. And yet he's in power. And he says, the sovereignty, the power of a novice is one thing in which, when it happens, the earth quakes. It trembles. It can't bear up. Not just the sham adulteress, but the sovereignty of a novice. He's not trained. He's not ready. He shouldn't be there. And not just the sovereignty of a novice, 
Proverbs 19.10 says, Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less a slave to rule over princes. Not just the sovereignty of a novice, but also the satisfaction of a fool. Look at the middle part of verse 22. And a fool when he is satisfied with food. What is that? Or you remember the fool? It's the Hebrew term Nabal. It's someone not without intelligence. That's not what a fool is. A fool is someone actually, most of the time, of course, with great intelligence, but who through their rebellion and their unbelieving heart is represented as an unbeliever. And here's this unbelieving fool, and he should understand that God has given him all of the food, all of the necessity for him to be satisfied with all of his needs, and yet he still flaunts the fact that as a fool, he's the one who's in charge of it all. God is the one who supplies us all our needs, even all of our food. Every time we sit down, we ought to say, thank you, Lord. I couldn't have generated this on my own. You've given it to me. But a fool does no such thing. A fool says, even when he's satisfied, even when he should bow in humble adoration for the God who supplies all things, including his very necessities, including the food at his table, instead, he continues to act like a fool. And Augur says, through even the satisfaction of a fool... The earth quakes, it trembles, it cannot bear up. Society crumbles. Augur is saying, you want to know what keeps society at the highest pace? It's thanking God who created things like the eagle, like the snake, like the ship in the sea, like the high seas themselves. We ought to be thanking God for what He's done and we ought to be giving Him glory and we ought to be giving God glory for the men and the women who are married, who are enjoying conjugal love. But what Satan does is he perverts everything and he turns the world upside down and he creates in the marriage an adulterous relationship and he creates with the very person who should be a servant an officer of the greatest in the land and he has no business being there. It's the perversion of right going wrong and it's the perversion of a world being turned upside down when you have a fool who when he should be acknowledging God with all of the great gifts of the necessities like food that God has given us, he gives him no glory and he's a fool and he's really not satisfied even though he's satisfied temporarily with food. It's turning the world upside down. You want to see an example of Nabal? Look at 1 Samuel 25. This is amazing. In fact, this is the man's name, Nabal. It, it actually is, indeed, the word fool. How would you like to have that name? 1 Samuel 25, in verse 2, Now there was an, a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And David, having some interaction through his own men with Nabal, who was shearing his sheep. David sent ten young men, according to verse 5, and he says, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. In other words, a blessing 
He wants to pronounce a blessing on him. And he says, now I've heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we've not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come for a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. In other words, we protected you. Now, share. And when David's young men came, according to verse 9, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? In other words, this was an affront. To David. So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. In other words, this is an insult. We protected you, and you've done nothing but be an affrontery to us. And yet Abigail intercedes. And if she hadn't, the whole lot of them would, would have been wiped out. And what is... What does she do? She says in verse 24, She fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. In other words, if you're going to blame anybody, blame me. Verse 28, Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. She pronounces a blessing on David. And David is just overwhelmed. And he blesses her. And in verse 36, Abigail came to Nabal And behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Why? Because he was a fool. In fact, Abigail even says it. She says, he is, as his name, a fool. He had all he wanted. He could have been totally satisfied. He could have even shared with others. But he was a fool, even by name. And you see, when you have someone who's like that, they overturn society. They turn it on its head. No wonder God judged him. That's why... Agur says, even in his own prayer in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, Give me neither poverty nor riches. I just want to be satisfied, Lord, with the portion that you give me. I don't want to be a fool. And here's another one. Look at the scorn of a hated woman. Look at the first part of verse 23. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband. You say, what is this? What's the sense of this? It's probably more of a sense that she's a hated woman, not just someone who's sheepishly unloved. In fact, the King James Version translates her as the odious woman. You say, well, what's what's she done? What's going on? Why is this a woman for whom the earth trembles? Society is turned on its head. It's something like this. Here's a woman who is unloved. In other words, she's been wanting a relationship, she's been wanting marriage, and she's been passed over time and time and time again. Remember, weak-eyed Leah, remember that? And she's become now angry and bitter, and even when the Lord gives her a husband, 
She continues to foment her bitterness and her anger because of all of those who slighted her, all of those who passed over her, and even now presently in her marriage relationship, she's angry and contentious and she lets everybody know it. And have we not heard about the contentious woman already in the book of Proverbs? It's better to live in the corner of a house than with a contentious woman. It's, it's something that Augur, as he observes it in the worst of community, says that this is so bad. It's like the sham love of an adulteress. It's like the sovereignty of a novice. It's, it's like this satisfaction of a fool who flaunts it all over the place but never acknowledges God. And it's like the scorn of an odious woman who can never get over the fact that she was passed over time and again, even when God blesses her, even when God gives her the husband that she wants, it's still not good enough and she's contentious and ornery. She's bitter and angry and you can't live with her. Turns the world upside down. And then look, lastly, at the seduction of the immoral. The end of verse 23, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. This is, this is also something that just turns society on its head. And what is it? It's a, a maidservant. Maybe she's a, an employee in the family. Um, she's, been, she's been around the family indirectly. She's not a part of the family, but she's around the family. And she sees the relationship of the husband and the wife and believes in her heart that maybe she's been slighted and so she works her work of conniving so that she can supplant her very mistress, the wife of the husband to whom she is employed. Does that remind you of something? How about Sarah and Hagar? Look at Genesis 16. You'll see it in, unfortunately, living color. Genesis 16.1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said, Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. She was conniving herself. She wanted a child so badly. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. And look at chapter 21. Continues on. Verse 9. Now Sarah 
saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. This is, this is a terrible living illustration of how society is destroyed when three people try to get involved in a marriage relationship. This is, this is the seduction of immorality. This is what happens. And for them, it was in their context. For ours, it's any three persons who attempt to have some kind of relationship and one becomes bitter and angry at the other and there's seduction and there's immorality and there's destruction of the worst kind. It's the worst of the worst of community. I mean, it's not just the sham love and pretense of an adulteress. That's bad enough. But it's the sovereignty of a novice. And if, if that's not bad enough, it's the satisfaction of a fool who thinks that he's in charge and not God. And it's the scorn of an odious woman. And it's the seduction of immorality. Here's what Augur's doing. He's discipling his sons and he's telling them this. I tell you, there is the best the best of creation, the best of community, but it's perverted and turned on its ear when you find out that sin is involved and it destroys relationships and it de destroys even creation itself. And that's our last outline point, the worst of creation. You say, well, what is the worst of creation? I just told you. It's all of that. It's, it's our parents, Adam and Eve... They plunge the whole human race into sin and they pervert both creation and community. You say, well, how does the sin of Adam and Eve plunge the world, the created order? Well, th think about the eagle. If he's a vulture, he goes down and he preys upon even human bodies. And what about that snake? The serpent used the very snake in the garden, Satan himself. And what about these high seas? Well, they have hurricanes and there are floods and disasters of all kinds. And what about the sexual union of a man and his wife perverted by the sham love and pretense of an adulteress? All of these things, all the created order itself is doomed because of the sin of one, madam, one man, Adam, our father. My friends, the whole of creation and the whole of community is destroyed because of the curse of sin. And here's what we need. I'll add the tenth to the nine. We need the sense of a Savior. We need the sense of a Savior. Men, I want you to come up for the receiving of the Lord's Supper. And as they do, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As we close, we have to know that the sense of our own heart, as God opens our eyes to see the worst of creation and community, cries out for the sense of a Savior. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about creation and community together needing 
to be reborn, recreated. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, don't miss that, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation, my friends, including all of those things that God has given us to enjoy and that He perfectly created, which have, which have now been subjected to futility, these things need to be recreated. And He says, and not only this, but we also ourselves, verse 23. And what does God do? Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's it. Well, we need the sense of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, recreating the creation itself and reversing the curse. And He needs in our hearts to come in as we repent and turn from our sin and as we place our faith in our Savior. He recreates our very image into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. You and I cannot, will not reverse the curse in any dimension of life, in creation or community, unless Jesus Christ works in our hearts and one day recreates the whole universe. That's what we need. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do add our tenth aspect, a sense of the Savior. We need Him. We appeal to You now, Savior, Jesus the Christ, for whom we are going to celebrate your table because you died. You were buried. You were raised from the dead. And you will recreate all that was originally created. And you will reside in our hearts, recreating us into the very image of yourself, the very image of God. We long for the adoption that awaits us. Even creation itself longs for the revealing of the sons of God. Oh, Jesus, please, Work in us and work in your world to recreate for your glory and your honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.